Hello and welcome to Halfstack Data Science, the show about data science in the real world. Today we're continuing our conversations with data science educators. If you're enjoying this series and our podcast in general, please take some time to review and rate our podcast on whichever platform you listen to it. We're also still on Twitter at this point in time, um, so you can find us there at HalfstackDS. If you have any comments or observations, uh, you can give us a shout there. So today we're talking to Matt Harrison. Matt stands as a prominent figure in the Python and data science community. A Stanford computer science alumnus, he's made significant contributions through his best-selling books, which include titles like Effective Pandas, Effective XGBoost, Machine Learning Pocket Reference, and Illustrated Guide to Learning Python 3. Beyond authorship, Matt has shared his expertise at major corporations such as Netflix and NASA, as well as academic institutions like Stanford, the University of Utah, and BYU. With a Python journey beginning in 2000, he's equipped thousands with vital skills both online and in person. Currently, he runs Metasnake, a Python and data training company. We talked to Matt about the pushback he gets whenever he posts some code online, what we all think of Excel's newly announced Python integration, how ChatGPT has affected all our work, and whether or not cooking is a good metaphor for programming. So please enjoy our conversation with Matt Harrison. All right, we're here with Matt Harrison. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So we'll start with the question we ask everyone, which is what is your job title and what do you really do all day? Okay, yeah, that's a, a good question. So my current job title, I guess, on LinkedIn says corporate trainer and consultant. So I like to say that I spend my time selling snake oil and teaching people to tell lies with data. I go into... <laughs> Generally, bigger companies. <laughs> I, I go into bigger companies and teach them to level up with Python and then apply data science machine learning techniques to their data. So that, that's what I do for a good chunk of time, but I, I don't do that 40 hours a week, four, four weeks a month, so to speak. So that, that's a few weeks a month. And then I guess on the off off time, then I guess I would be more of a content creator. So is that stuff just like for yourself or do people commission you to create content? Um, yes. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, so as a trainer, I love training. I love like seeing people level up their skills and get things done. My challenge has been, I've never been able to crack the nut, so to speak of like, who do I call on LinkedIn to get training? And all of my uh, business has come basically through my network. And so be that conferences, uh, meetups, blog posts, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and writing books. So I've found that, you know, just getting myself out there is the best advertising for me. Since it doesn't seem like there's like, if you go to a Fortune 500 and look for the person who's in charge of training, everyone who engages with me for training has like a different title. Some mm. might be CTO, some might be head engineer, some might be learning development, some might be HR. What's the most uh, interesting job title of the person that you have found and has been, been your customer? I, it seems like most of them are in technology and they sort of reach out to me rather than 
I mean, occasionally you'll find someone who's in HR, but you know that there's always these people whose job is like learning and training or something like that. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I've never, I've never had any interactions with them, and I've done a lot of work for large companies. So interesting. Yeah. That's um, that's really interesting. David, I guess, like in your experience, do you interact with those people in the in the market, the learning and development people, or is it that technology driven? We need to train some people in some stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm quite similar to Matt. A lot of my work would just come through my network, so it would be someone who has a, a use case ready to go, and they're already on the lookout for something. But it's not usually learning and development people. It's usually people closer to data teams. Mm. I don't know. Is have you found that as well, Matt? That people who are like going to directly benefit are the ones that are coming to you or is it I mean you said you sometimes speak to people in HR which I find interesting I mean what's the use case there like how, what are they saying coming to you I, I mean the HR people are like we need to level up our teams right and so I've been tasked with finding someone who's a trainer to train them versus someone who's a team lead who's coming and saying hey we should hire Matt because I went to a conference and he spoke there and it sounds like he'd, he'd be a good fit for what we need to do is there a, a difference in the quality of interaction, do you think, based on the, the use case they come to you with? I feel like someone who has like seen you at a conference and knows your specific value proposition might lead to a more fruitful discussion, but I don't know if that's the case. It just depends, yeah. I mean, some people want to get their job done, right? And so they're like, oh, this guy talks <laughs> like box. he knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. so, so he's obviously done it before, so... So we feel comfortable with that. Um, yeah, others want to sort of dive deep into the weeds. I mean, it seems like even a lot of times people are like, I want training, but they don't really want training. They just want to sort of pick my brain and instead of like engaging and consulting, they want to like <laughs> ask for advice rather than anything else. I think that might be the, the, yeah, the nub of the nut that is hard to crack is that a lot of people looking to learn something about data may not necessarily know that. So it's not necessarily a need that is surfacing up to a chief people officer of a Fortune 500 company and leading to a large data literacy program. It's probably much more tactical of like, hey, we need to make this happen. And we've got these people yeah. and we've got this skills gap. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, the other, I mean, to me, the interesting thing is I think a lot of these people, especially from like the Python side, Python's so popular these days. We had Stack Overflow. Now we have tools like ChatGPT. And so a lot of people who aren't, they didn't go to school to be computer scientists or software engineers, right? But they're basically sitting down in front of a computer all day and doing Python and getting paid for it. But they don't want to be software engineers. I mean, they explicitly say that. And mm. it seems like there's kind of a big problem where people who are, you know, I'm a scientist or, you know, material science or geophysicist where they're using Python all day, but they, they don't want to be a programmer, right? For whatever reason, they don't like that title. And, and so I see a lot of people who have pretty huge knowledge gaps where they've been, I would call them the Stack Overflow or maybe even the academic Python user where, where a lot of academic python i've seen has been more the professor is kind of forced to teach python now because their dean said that everyone's using python so they take their c++ slides and like make them pythony uh, and so people don't a lot of people don't really know python even though they've had a course or two in in school and stack overflow and chat makes it really easy to use python there's a lot of knowledge gaps in there that 
uh, I think once you understand it better, makes you a lot more productive and also makes you better able to collaborate with others. Is this a niche that you've picked and are targeting on purpose or is this just sort of organically happened over time and just because looking at your body of work and the things I've seen you do like the effective pandas book for example which which I think does fill that knowledge gap this, I think it's the whole point of it is, is that a niche that you've specifically like doubled down on on purpose uh, probably uh, so so my background is I have a computer science degree and I worked in industry for since 2000 using Python. My first job out of school was doing natural language processing. And at that time, there's no Spacey library. There's no NLTK library. So I've, I've been using Python for data for a long time, but I also have, I guess, some background in education in that my mom was an educator. And since high school, I've done tutoring and basically paid for my schooling through tutoring others. And, you know, through, through school, I was teaching, you know, teenagers to program and 70 year olds to program, that sort of thing. And so I guess someone who's interested in that learning aspect, it's sort of like you see things that work and you see things that aren't out there. And I guess a lot of programmers want to like paint their own bike shed. And so I think a lot of my educational material came out of what I would want if I was learning Python or pandas and uh, gaps that I, I see in, in industry or just in general as, as I go around. What are some of the classic gaps that you're talking about between those people who've arrived at using Python or anything else uh, versus those who uh, trained in that specifically? Yeah, I, I mean, Probably the biggest one is just this notion in Python that everything is an object. And that really thrills people for a loop because a lot of people are used to like references or pointers and you're passing by value or you're passing by reference. And, and Python is kind of neither because you can have mutable types and immutable types. So the whole notion that you can make a variable that points to a list and then you mutate the list and the other variable is now mutated, that sort of throws people for a loop. Or that when you define a function, you're actually making a variable that points to a function object. I, I find that like if you understand that functions are objects, that makes things like closures and functional style programming or fast passing around functions and even lambdas a lot more approachable. I'm having some crazy flashbacks because <laughs> I taught myself SQL and then I taught myself R. And then I did some Coursera courses in Python because I was afraid that I didn't understand what deep learning was. And then I realized it's <laughs> logistic and linear regression stacked on top of each other with a feedback function. And yes, it's more complicated than that. But uh, sure. I did have to wrestle with that thing when I did a couple of um, Coursera courses. And mm -hmm. I suddenly started to understand things I'd never understood. Um, what What's the consequence of people not understanding those things. I understand it would be good if people could use all the features of a language, but like what what pathologies does that generate when people don't actually understand anything that's under the hood? Yeah, and 
I'm again. I'm not trying to say that like people are bad if they don't understand things. Like there are certain. No, that's that, clear. Like, You're not trying to say. I, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like for, for for me, like I I haven't even like jumped into Rust, right? So people say things about Rust, and for me, it's like all going over my head because I don't. I haven't spent any time looking at that. But I mean, could I like go to like ChatGPT and say translate this Python program to a Rust program and get it to work? I think I could do that relatively easily, right? Um, does that make me a Rust programmer? Um, for some definitions, maybe. But I, I think the, the issue, the main issue, I think for especially like large companies who have like hundreds of people using Python is just productivity where you're a lot more productive when you understand what's going on and you're also better able to collaborate with others. So I like to think that it's like taking like everyone and like raising the level of them, allowing them to like speak at the same level, understand what's going on. I also think that, you know, I get a lot of flack on Twitter while I'll post something and people say like, that's ugly code or whatnot. And which for me is kind of weird because when I'm teaching programming, I, I always teach that you want to write code that's easy to read, not necessarily easy to write. And those two aren't aren't the same. Um, but I think you also need to know your audience. And if you're a professional programmer, you should be using professional constructs. Uh, I mean, I can. And so that that is a little bit different than easy to read as well, where I can write code that's easy to read for a newbie. But I don't necessarily think that that's what most professionals need or should have because that's not going to serve them the best. And a lot of people take issue with that where they're like, you're using constructs that are too complicated. Um, I mean, they might be complicated if you don't know what's going on, but if you do know what's going on, it will make your life a lot easier and can reduce bugs and make your code more effective. So uh, yeah, it, it is a challenge, especially because a lot of people have gaps and they don't even know about those gaps because I think a lot of the learning is kind of messed up. I, I, I could go, I could rant on about learning for, for a lot because it's what podcasts are for, right? That's, that's like the definition. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really good point that really good point about audiences. Like it makes complete sense when you put it like that, but like to actually think of code to get a job done, but then also a second audience for your code beyond the computer that's going to execute it in, in some way is, um, is really important and it makes total sense that on Twitter you would have got flamed out for um, you know for taking a position on anything <laughs> sure luckily that platform doesn't exist anymore so yeah. <laughs> okay. that, that was a question X. I had lined up because yeah I, I always I always chuckle at that because you you do sometimes get flack for specifically I think for effective pandas where you talk about method chaining which is I think you know I think we all, if you've used pandas for long enough, it's the way to write pandas code. It's how it's intended. Um, it is actually mm -hmm. cleaner, I think, to read as well. But yeah, if you're a newbie, it's a lot. It's very dense and it's very different from what you might have seen in introductory course. And um, do, yeah. do you then teach at different levels? So do you have like materials teaching like newbie friendly code and also materials teaching the effective pandas way? Or do you just take newbies along a journey direct, like straight to the, the place you think they should be? Yeah, great question. Yeah, so so generally, from for most of my clients, I will start off with like a three day fundamentals of Python course, and I I, I generally will do this even for people who are using Python full time mm. in their jobs, but 
I, I think you kind of want to start with the lowest common denominator and bring everyone up. And, and even for people who have that knowledge, I think it's good for them to sit in there and, and sort of show solidarity with everyone else and also be able to be able to help them. Um, as, so, so yeah, I generally sort of try and take people down a path where, where they're going to be able to uh, be leveled up. I, I, like if, if people go through that course and they take like popular like online evaluations of their Python skills, it says that they're highly proficient in Python. I, I don't know that that's necessarily the case, but I think they, they have a lot of the brain knowledge, so to speak. They might not have uh, a lot of the practice uh, to do that. As far as like with pandas, yeah, so, so sort of the same thing. I think a lot of people's confusion with my pandas code is that I'll show a longer piece of pandas code on Twitter or, or wherever and people get upset about that. And I, I always, as someone who does education, I, I'm like, I, my goal here isn't to necessarily upset people though, it turns out that that's actually good for engagement and for getting eyeballs, <laughs> which <laughs> can't complain. Or, I, yeah, um, but but as an educator, like I I don't want to do things the hard way. I want to do things with ways that are going to help my clients, right? And and so I'm always I always I'm always open to if you have a better way to do it, show me the better way to do it. I, um, I generally get few takers on that. I mean, sometimes people will say. Well, you had like magic numbers in there, that sort of thing, which is like fine, whatever. I can factor out the magic numbers if that that makes it. But you know, the the way that a lot of popular media portrays pandas is here's 20 functions or methods that you need to know about pandas. And my experience is that when I'm working with data, generally it's not clean, and there's not one of those 20 things that I need to do to the data. It's oftentimes I need to do multiple steps. Mm. And, and so I don't want to do things in isolation. And, I, I, and, and so I'm gonna build up this chain, this recipe of things to clean up the data. And a lot of people only see the final recipe. They don't see the process that I go through. So I think a lot of the confusion stems from that where they see this final output and they're like, oh yeah, there's a lot of text on there. There's a lot of code going on and their brain automatically sees, okay, I can't understand this because I, I didn't understand the process. But if, if, if you uh, sort of take a step back and look at it sort of line by line about what's going on, it reads like a recipe. And uh, I've found that people with very little training in pandas can uh, grok that and uh, start leveraging that and making use of it. Mm. I just yeah. quickly Googled method chaining pandas and got a blog that referred to you as a proponent, scrolled down and <laughs> saw a whole bunch of Python code that, that was really hard for me to read. And then the method chaining one, I'm like, that's way easier to read. Because <laughs> it's, yeah. you know, for someone who's not a, it's, it's interesting actually, yeah. That someone who's not a born or like educated programmer, like, Recipe is just a fantastic metaphor for what you want to do to data repeatedly. Why is it always cooking? Yeah. Why does it always come back to cooking? We just we, can't we get away from talking about this yeah. in another episode. Why is it always cooking it, with data? It's probably not a good metaphor for, for data stuff because, uh, I mean, a lot of data stuff is more of a circle, right? And I don't know that you want to like rehydrate or recook your food, so to speak. <laughs> it should um, go back to chopping up your onions once, you're, yeah, once it's already boiling. Yeah. That's actually, <laughs> yeah. in a that's way, exactly quite a good it. metaphor for... <laughs> 
for, for why it's not for, like for the output and how distasteful it can feel sometimes yeah, yeah. yeah. Haven't, yeah. I haven't i eaten this food already yeah you have <laughs> i think i think another problem stems from our environments and i i so one of the issues that we have is like jupiter jupiter is a great i mean just today someone asked me like i don't get jupiter like why would you use jupiter why don't you use like some code editor instead for teaching or for work for work okay and so i mean i use it both for teaching and for work but um uh, someone said like you know why would i use jupiter and i said well jupiter makes it really easy to get instant feedback right so when you're trying something out especially like in this circle of like data work you want i don't i don't i think a lot of people think that i take this chain and i just write the whole chain and then i run it right and i'm not doing that i'm <laughs> doing one step at a time and testing it as i'm going and so jupiter makes that really easy However, a lot of people, when they're using Jupyter, instead of doing like this chain, they'll do like one operation per cell and they might have them in some arbitrary order. And so when they try and recreate their state, it's really hard, especially mm. if they've executed their code in an, an out of order state to, to, to understand what's going on. They kind of shoot themselves in the foot. It'll be interesting because as we speak just today, Microsoft has announced Python integration with Excel and yeah. Excel is, I would, I, I would say that Excel is the most popular programming environment in the world. And a lot of people, when I say that are like, kind of like, what, what do you mean? But like, if you're doing like a VLOOKUP, you're programming with Excel. Um, mm. And so I think Excel did a really good thing in that it is excellent for the out of the box, uh, five minute, easy to, I would say easy to write code. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy to read. And, and, and so I think it's going to be interesting to see what sort of happens as, as we are now in this place where a lot of people, I, a lot of people I teach kind of want to move from Excel to sort of the Jupyter side of doing things. Um, I, I, that might be start getting blurred a little bit now. Um, so, so what will these best practices look like in Excel where like you don't even see the code I mean, you see like a cell with some output. I guess you can you can look at it by looking at the code underneath the cell. But um, it'll it'll be interesting to see if that uh, where that uptake happens and um, what the crossover is uh, for Excel and Python. Yeah, I, I already sent that announcement to all my trainer friends, saying like. Is this what we're going to teach from now on? Like, I mean, what's your gut instinct? Just looking at that announcement of like, do, do you see some of your material potentially moving in that direction? Um, that's that's my, my gut is not too keen on doing that. <laughs> Maybe. Um, I, 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 I have a lot of material taking people out of Excel and putting them into Jupyter um, and, and that environment. In fact, I have like a half written like re-implementation of 80% of Excel functions and sort of NumPy pandas sitting on my laptop somewhere. Um, but like I said, there's a lot of people using Excel. Uh, so I, I think if you can get some best practices around that, that, that might be interesting. Um, as, as far as, you know, someone, who, like I said, who sells snake oil for a living, um, that's potentially an interesting uh, source of, of uh, work for me. 
right? To kind of look at that crossover between mm. people who are looking to uh, leverage Python uh, and the data side, but also uh, are heavily invested in Excel. Mm. So you could also sell gateway drugs as well. I think that's the takeaway, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I sell gateway drugs. Interestingly, though, I wonder if it, you know, just uh, it's not usually my job to put the optimist hat on, but, um, <laughs> you know, my slippery slope towards all of this was like, do stuff in Excel. Wait a minute. How far can I push Excel? Oh, you can push it this far and this far and this far. And then you're in VBA and then you're looking up Microsoft Access and all this kind of stuff. It might be interesting if Excel, including some some perhaps more robust programming languages and frameworks made that slippery slope a bit safer right and a bit easier for people taking those steps to end up in a more productive place compared to what i was doing recording my recording macros of myself editing spreadsheets to automatically format them and then working out control flow in vba to automate that and then to try and yeah do error correction on on all of that uh maybe it creates a new generation faster of people who can yeah get get out of excel or build on top of it um yeah some of those anti-patterns yeah i think there's a ton of of i would say software engineering best practices that a lot of the data side has just overlooked or a lot of I, not necessarily data, even scientists, right? Again, this notion that I don't want to be a programmer, but for all intents and purposes, you are being a programmer. And you know, when you're using things like Jupyter, you're, you're violating a lot of programmer tenets, like don't make global variables. Um, a lot of people don't even know what tests are, that sort of thing. So I think there's a lot of room for, for educating and helping people uh, start uh, adopting best practices. It's one of the reasons I'm not like s super afraid of chat, uh, like taking over people, like programmers' jobs, so to speak. Uh, because I think as someone who understands a language quite well, like I can use chat to, and when I say chat, I'm talking about generative AI, sort of on a first name basis with chat. Um, um, I, I can use chat, so I, I sort of view it this way, like I, I've got like so many gallons in the tank for like productive work and uh, you know sometimes I have to do like menial tasks that suck some of that energy out, but uh, I, if I can have chat do it in like a minute rather than me taking an hour or two to do it, um, that leaves me at, at a better place to uh, do uh, better work and work on harder things. Uh, but I think for people who kind of don't know what they're doing, oftentimes they can get into a place where like they might be spending more time sort of fighting the prompt or debugging it or seeing what's going on. Uh, and if and if they don't know, if they don't really understand code and they're just sort of copying and pasting this, they can get e very easily into a place where where they're just out of the out of you know their their heads underwater because they don't they don't understand what's going on and they don't really know how to recover from that. So I think for those who who kind of have mastery, th this chat is going to be an, an AI is going to be an enabler for them. Uh, for those who don't, um, I think it's, it's a great time to learn how to program and and leverage those skills.
Yeah, I totally agree. I think this is, it's like Stack Overflow, but on steroids, right? If you could talk to Stack Overflow, it would be the same problem of like, yeah, you could probably copy and paste your way to some solution, but if it doesn't work, then you're stuck. And chat, I think, I don't know what your experience is, but my experience is the more specific you get about your problem, the almost the worse it gets. Like, this is my exact problem. This is the error message I'm getting. And it's going to throw stuff out there that it doesn't know because it doesn't have the full context of what I'm trying to do. And so if I didn't know how programming worked or any of that worked, I would be stuck forever. And then, then what was the point of, of getting this magic tool? Um, whereas if you have experience, <clears throat> the way I use Stack Overflow is I don't even read the question. I just like, scroll down until I see a code snippet that looks like something that is relevant. I just, you know, then I know where it goes in my code. I know how to change it to make it work. And that only comes with experience. So yeah, I totally agree yeah. with you. I don't think it's gonna, I don't think it's gonna change anything. And one thing I was going to ask you is, so you seem to have a very clear view of what to teach people. Uh, does that ever differ from the students' views of what they're going to be taught coming into a course? Like, do you ever have conversations or, or, or do you ever see this on students where they're like, oh, this is not what I thought we were going to do on a, this Python course? Yeah. I, so, so first of all, um, one, one thing I've learned is that you can never make everyone happy, right? And And so people have different skills and if you try and make everyone happy, you're going to make no one happy. Generally, you'll have a good chunk of people in, in sort of this happy space. You'll have some small chunk who might have already known the stuff. You'll have some other people who didn't read the syllabus and probably aren't quite ready for it. Um, but uh, oftentimes, you know, if you are pretty explicit about what you want in the course um, or you've talked to the people who are being there, you can you can have a good experience there. Oftentimes I will get a lot of people who are like, I didn't know what I didn't know, right? So this course was great for like filling filling in those knowledge gaps. Um, I mean, I, I have given a course to a client where they said, okay, we're all Python programmers and we want your intermediate course. And so I started, you know, generally I'll start off a with a new group just going over, talking about their backgrounds and experience. And, um, you know, in that case, you know, the person who sort of ordered the course probably wasn't the right person to order it. And I kind of covertly switched out the slides, like from the advanced Python course to the fundamentals Python course. No one in the class really knew, so to speak, right? But um, everyone was happy about that even though like the person who's ordering it was like, oh, these are all professionals and they've been doing this for X number of years. So can be super challenging, right? And, and there are a lot of people who do Python training and I, I could again rant on that. Like even a lot of the courses you see out there who are, who are, who are made uh, by certain places, the people who are teaching Python don't really know Python. They're just course creators. Um, and so you kind of need to be careful about where you're, where you're drinking your water, so to speak. Um, cause you, you could be taking a Python class and you look at some of these people who, oh, I've taught 20 Java classes and 20 C plus plus classes and, and 20 Python classes. And you look at their Python code and, and it's kind of clear that like they probably don't write Python code or haven't really written Python code, so to speak in the real world. Like, so I think one of the one of the benefits from my side is that before I went, I've been doing the training thing for almost ten years now. But before that, I was doing development and data stuff with Python. 
So I, I've kind of been down that path of uh, using Python for a long time, using it for software engineering. I worked for a testing company doing a lot of data stuff. Um, I, I ran the Utah Python group for a, a long time. I've been attending conferences and listening to people talk about things. So I have a, a good deal of background knowledge that um, allows me to, I think, kind of adapt more so than other trainers who are more, I would say, slide readers, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think there's no substitute for having practical experience because once a student has a question beyond the slides and you can't answer it, then you know you might as well have been Chat GPT spitting out a curriculum. Um, so what, finally, I mean, what do you think is your future then as, as a data educator in the world of ChatGPT, given everything that you've said and given the fact that your background makes you more resilient, I think, to changes in Python and changes in ChatGPT? Where do you see your work or your focus going in, in the coming years? That's a great question. I, I mean, a lot of people think that, you know, chat, so not only can chat, uh, you know, just give me my answers, but they can also say, well, I'll just, you know, ask chat to give me like a two semester course on Python or whatever, right? And and have chat go through that. Um, and I really think the value of an educator is content curation and like taking you through a path. And again, those who have used chat or any of these tools know that they, I mean, how they work is by hallucinating, right? And, and based on their, their data, oftentimes their hallucinations or their output are, is good. And sometimes it's not, sometimes it's a straight out lie. So I, 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 it'd be really hard for me to like recommend like blindly just saying, I'm going to use whatever this tool outputs and that's gonna be you know, how I learn things. Yeah. Um, also, I, I mean, for, as an educator, I'm uh, that also doesn't really bother me too much because, like, there's already more than enough content on blogs and on YouTube. Like, no one could literally watch this stuff in their lifetime, right? So, so as far as like content being out there, um, there's more than enough. Again, I, I think it comes down to curation. Um, being able to take people down a path. Uh, I do think that there's probably utility in, uh, you know, how how can I best leverage some of these tools? Like I said, I, th I think um, that there's definitely like, for me, I, I, I get a lot of value out of them because again, like these low level or like low hanging fruit sort of things that um, just take time, but aren't necessarily hard. I, I can offload them. And so, so if, if I can help customers do that, one of the things I see is that a lot of my customers like have a sandbox where, or firewall where they can't, they can't use these tools, right? Just because um, privacy concerns, that sort of thing. So, there's there's that as well um the other the other side of that is just i i guess from a content perspective right right now generative ai anything ai in it is sort of the new hotness and i i think people think that they want to leverage that but i for me i think you still need to have those fundamentals and i i, I don't see um AI sort of 
saving us from from uh, knowledge of fundamentals. Yeah, no, I think I agree. I think it's going to be a useful tool, but uh, I'm surprisingly optimistic about my chances as a as an educator for the future. I think just just like yourself. Great. And so, uh, where where can people find you online? Yeah, so I, I'm on Twitter or X, uh, Dunder M Harrison uh, underscore underscore M Harrison underscore underscore. I have uh, my my company is called MetaSnake, so M E T A Snake dot com. Um, I've had that name before the uh, company formerly known as Facebook uh, jumped that. Trend. Hopefully you're safe from a lawsuit from them. I hope so. They haven't reached out to me yet, knock on wood. Uh, and I'm also on LinkedIn as well. So uh, typical social media platforms. Okay, great. Um, thanks so much for, for joining us, Matt. It's been great. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on.